Good morning. This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Alan Kamlick. People diagnosed with autism tend to have difficulty in socializing and may have restrictive and repetitive behaviors. Today, we'll hear how two researchers are tackling this developmental disorder. I'll talk with Fordham PhD student Shaming Lu on memory processing in kids with autism. But first, I sit down with Fordham doctoral candidate Amanda Leader. She's here to discuss her research on how kids can have a positive influence for their siblings diagnosed with autism. So, right off the bat, what exactly is autistic spectrum disorder? It's now uh, covering a pretty wide spectrum, so to speak. But essentially, any issues that people have with social and communication areas, and a lot of times very narrowed interest or repetitive kind of behaviors. Autism, in, in a way, speaks to these people being in a way in their own world, and they don't really communicate the way you and I would. A lot of times, when autism is brought up in a conversation, the distinction between high functioning and low functioning is often made. What exactly is the difference between a low-functioning autistic person and a high-functioning autistic person? Well, high-functioning autistic people usually have more language. That's the thread that I've kind of found. So they can have a conversation much easier than a person that's low-functioning. Yeah, I think that, that even I grew up with people who were probably never diagnosed, but were on the spectrum somewhere. I know I've spoken to my parents, and they, uh, they've told me about characters from their histories that have kind of shown uh, signs of being a little bit removed, a little bit untraditional in their ways of, of communicating and being socially kind of involved. And even high-functioning people speak of kind of a different sensory experience. So, for example, us walking into maybe a typical kind of room or a classroom or things like that, if you could put yourself in the shoes of someone who's autistic, maybe they're a little bit overwhelmed by the lights or the noise or they're a little uh, underwhelmed. So they have like a, issues with their sensory system as well. So that's what even high-functioning people speak about. And low-functioning people, it seems that it's just a more extreme version of what the high-functioning uh, people in the spectrum are experiencing. So walking into a regular room might feel like going into uh, all of a sudden a concert or like a busy uh, supermarket, you know, kind of that feeling where you feel, oh, all right, now I'm kind of being a little bit overwhelmed by my sensory environment and you have to kind of gear up for it. So in a way, they're overwhelmed by that and they have issues with social and communication kind of stuff. But uh, I don't think the distinction has been made enough in terms of high functioning and low functioning people. I'm pretty brushed up on the literature and I can't tell you the amount of uh, articles I've read where you only find out through one sentence in the article. You find midway through that this really was not a group of just, you can't call them just autistic. I mean, these were very high-functioning people, so that won't necessarily generalize to someone who is having a lot more difficulties living independently and things like that. You mentioned that an issue is that the spectrum of ASD, autism spectrum disorder, is so large that it's kind of hard to categorize things. Do you think that might be part of the problem when it comes to trying to understand how autism affects people? You got it right, exactly. I think where we're headed uh, in terms of the future of understanding autism is to understand subtypes, right? So there are some people who have language who have less sensory issues, right? And there's others who all of a sudden have a meltdown here and are fine over there. And really, they say when you've met one person with autism, you've met one person with autism. So what we're trying to look for is basically trends among various subgroups. And ultimately, I think in terms of educational interventions for this population is we're going to be tailoring them to not like a one-size-fits-all approach, right? Because these people are so different from one another, but rather 
hey, it looks like this intervention might work with people who are look like they have more attentional problems, right? And this one might really work with kids who need more more discipline in order to learn. And I think that there's a ways to go. It's great that everybody's finally kind of looking at autism and appreciating this kind of big issue that's at hand. But I think that we should really take it a step further in terms of understanding differences among these people. Your study looks at the role siblings play with kids that are diagnosed with autistic spectrum disorder or ASD. Right. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So we're just starting to understand what it's like to be autistic, right? We're kind of getting into the minds of these people and how they're experiencing the world. And we're also starting to understand uh, the way the family's affected and people close to the family. And there's no doubt that it's very stressful to receive a diagnosis in the family and then to deal with it. And one of the most intriguing relationships to me was the sibling relationship, right? They were supposed to be, quote unquote, the normal ones, right? It turns out the research shows that they have a lot of needs, needs for more attention from the parents. They feel alone in certain regards, right? And what was most compelling to me was that when I would work in people's homes or when uh, siblings would come to schools that I would work at, I felt like I was better equipped to speak to these people with autism than their own brother or sister. And that to me was not an okay thing. So what I would ideally like is for these siblings to feel, for it to be a really mutually beneficial relationship. And little research that's out there points to the fact that this can exist. If they want to, I would like for them to have the option to give support to their sibling and uh, feel more capable and feel like more useful as a sibling. And it could be that ultimately siblings are teachers in a way to their younger siblings, right? With autism, younger and older is kind of flipped on its head. But I believe that they can have a uniquely powerful relationship with their siblings with autism. And I think the siblings with autism really take to them quite a bit. I spoke with uh, Griffin Murphy, who's the head of Autism Speaks. It's a Fordham University club that's all about advocacy for autism. And he has a younger brother, two years younger than him, that has autism. And he was telling me that the one thing that he really did wish that his brother had an appreciation for growing up was a love for football, but he just never had that. Right. Do you think that that kind of lack of shared interest is a part of the problem when it comes to maybe developing this relationship between siblings? I think it's a huge problem. Um, I think that it doesn't resemble a normal sibling relationship. It really becomes this, like I said before, very unique kind of thing where their play skills are not their strong point, these children with autism. And how do you play with them? You know, they're not interested in what you're interested in necessarily. You could try and engage them. He, I'm sure he tried to throw a football around with his brother and uh, you have to quickly learn and sometimes at a very young age that this is just not going to happen, right? The first theorist, psychological theorist that I really took to was a psychologist named Lev Vygotsky because he talks about this zone of proximal development and that's where all this learning takes place, right? So the zone of proximal development is essentially knowing where, if you're, let's say, a regular teacher, right, and you're trying to teach a long division or whatever it is, so you have to know exactly where your students are at in terms of where their knowledge is. But most teachers are fairly aware and it's usually the same across the class to a certain level, right? But you need to know exactly what to expect from them to make that learning happen. So if you don't know what they know and what they don't know, you don't know what expectations to have of them. If you're too easy on them and you're not teaching them much and you don't realize that they 
know much of this already and this is easy for them, they're bored. And if it's too difficult and it's too much of a leap, they're going to become frustrated. And this is something that I realized when I learned about this theorist, that this is something I had done in all my years clinically working with autistic kids. Every kid was different. Everyone had their own splinter skills. One was amazing at math but had no language. This one had language but couldn't do math, right? So what do you do with that? Well, when you walk into a session with each child, you have to respect that child and where they're at and what their interests are. And then according to that, you have to kind of put yourself at a situation where you have the right expectation for them. So I think that half the battle is understanding where the sibling's at. And I think it's so difficult because especially if you're the younger sibling, you see the older sibling you kind of surpass them in terms of developmental milestone. It's almost like you're coming up from behind them, driving from behind them, and then you're you're surpassing them and you say, what's going on, right? And how do you know how to teach them what and what you should be teaching them, if you should be teaching them? These are things that kids, it might not come easily to them, right? So in the interviews that I do, in addition to observing siblings playing, I interview the parents and I interview the neurotypical, meaning the non-autistic sibling. And the one consistent finding so far that we've gotten is that parents... I ask them the same question. I ask them whether the neurotypical child sees themselves as a mentor. And then I ask the parent if they think that the neurotypical child is is a mentor to the child with autism. And the parents generally across the board say yes. And the siblings kind of don't recognize this within themselves, which I thought was a very interesting finding. And is that more so with the kids that are younger than their autistic sibling? Or does it really matter if they're older or younger? I mean, the general finding, and again, I don't want to speak too much about it because we only have initial kind of results from it, but I can speak anecdotally in the sense from what I've seen of the results that um, basically being older and you know, more apart in years, I think, makes them a little bit more willing to take on that role, right? But when they're younger or they're closer in age to the person with autism, it's a kind of more difficult thing to grasp. But I don't think we should necessarily expect them to just have this innate kind of knowledge. Do you think that with the older sibling that is autistic, it almost forces a certain amount of maturity for the child to have that they otherwise wouldn't have given their sibling not having this particular ASD disorder. Yeah, it's kind of a tall order to expect them to be this mature in a sense. And autism is very complex. I couldn't even imagine grasping what was exactly wrong with my sibling, if that was me. And uh, I think that it's not for everyone. We're not saying we should put these people to work as therapists, right? But I'm saying it's almost like, you know, the Doe Foundation, they're ready, willing, and able right. kind of slogan. So yeah. that's kind of the combination I think about when I think of it. Like, are they ready? Okay. Are they at an age? I mean, I don't include anyone in my study below age five because even if you're the neurotypical one, I don't expect a five-year-old neurotypical child to be showing the way to an eight-year-old with autism, you know? So it is definitely a tall order, but I think that with the right support, they can kind of get excited about it and motivated. And I think that there are certain ways we can really reinforce them through this. For example, if a parent would praise a neurotypical child and really kind of motivate them to be in this teaching role, then all of a sudden the neurotypical child feels competent. Wow, I've really taught them this entirely new concept. My parents are really proud of me. That kind of makes a lot of logical sense. But it's difficult. I mean, I'm talking with years of training, so I'm pretty biased. But it's not easy to just teach these kind of things, which is why I put a lot of work into my coding scheme that I look at in terms of the way they're interacting with each other. 
And when you mean coding scheme, you mean like the way you're able to analyze the relationships that siblings have with each other. Yeah, or okay. analyze the interactions, basically quantifying these interactions. I've tried to keep them really as non-judgmental as possible, and really they're based on my experience in terms of I've experienced with various different interventions, um, and I tried to accumulate the various strategies that I found over the years and through all the interventions that I've given are generally accepted and are successful, and what doesn't work. Well, well, it doesn't work. Well, something I've found, and this really is based anecdotally, but I feel that my experience in the clinical setting has really given me enough exposure to kind of make these judgments. And what I've found is repeating your question exactly the same way. They're not going to suddenly turn around and say, oh, I'm sorry, I, I just didn't hear you the first time, you know? <laughs> and wouldn't it be great if we could just tell these siblings, hey, you know, maybe he didn't understand when you said, oh, we're going to be late. Maybe if you would have reworded it as uh, we have to leave by 830, then maybe they would understand it a little bit better, right? Maybe there are certain things that they were not getting. Make it kind of go through a different route, kind of try and reach them differently. Repeating yourself and repeating their name, I've generally found doesn't work. In terms of like the relationship that the sibling has, the, the amount of lateral thinking they have to employ in order to help out their sibling with ASD, in your observation, how does that improve the quality of life for the sibling? Well, all I can tell you is that parents and peers have been recruited to essentially be therapists for, okay. for people with autism, and it's been working wonders. The parents themselves feel better. The peers feel more accepting. I know that the research shows that they have a tendency towards more anxiety. Um, there are social issues at play in terms of the social lives they lead outside the home and then coming home to a sibling with autism. It's a kind of a lot of people don't understand it. Right. And growing up as a kid, it's, it can be difficult. But there's a lot of reasons why I think we should be addressing the sibling relationship. But one that I think surpasses them all is what happens when the parents are no longer here. I myself would want to know that, that my children were taking care of one another. And there's a lot of decisions to be made, ultimately. And I would like them to not feel like this is all of a sudden being forced upon them when, when they lose a parent or things like that. But I'd like them to kind of feel like they were a part of the process and they were part of the solution and that they were capable. The last thing I want to do is put more stress on the sibling. I would like for us to be able to support that relationship if it looks like we can. Is there a sense of like forced socialization with the sibling in the sense that is there something to it that being siblings actually exposes them to a social environment that they otherwise wouldn't have? It is, a, in a way, a forced socialization. Yeah, you could absolutely phrase yeah. it like that. But I think that a lot of what we do with people with autism is forced socialization. Essentially, we're making them live in a world that the social rules that dictate our lives, we assume they should just kind of join okay. us, right? So the neurotypical sibling, yeah, a lot, I hear a lot of frustration, especially from the younger siblings, not younger in relation to their sibling with autism, but generally people, I would say, you know, under 10. Right. It's a drag. It's <laughs> Uh, it's not what they would have hoped for, but people don't choose their siblings, and siblings can oftentimes be extremely different, and it can be a struggle, but I think that we have to deal with the situation that we've been given in as best a way that we can. So I think that a lot of them will want to take on a more caring role and will be more protective than they think they would be otherwise. There's different stages to this. We've just kind of started to scratch the surface yeah. of researching the sibling relationship. And I think that we'll kind of uncover a lot of nuances that we don't currently know. And I think that also growing up with someone who's disabled is extremely tough and doesn't really make much sense to them. And there's, like I said, a lot of nuances at play that we can kind of help to support them. Does the relationship with the sibling help develop the communication skills for a child with ASD? 
Yeah, well, the relationship is everything, right? So once you right. have the relationship established, then the teaching can really occur. So another way I developed my coding scheme to look at these interactions was to look at social engagement and facilitation strategies mm-hmm. and also cognitive. So I'm looking at in what ways are they kind of mentoring and teaching and in what ways are they kind of just engaging them socially and being a friend, right? And the sibling relationship is really a perfect cross between the peer relationship and the family relationship. So learning absolutely takes place. This has been recounted in the literature over and over in neurotypical kids. So Mm -hmm. not autistic to non-autistic sibling. I know my brother taught, I just remember learning so much from him, right? Everything I learned, I felt like was from my brother. Like I learned what I learned in school and I learned what I learned from my friends and I learned what I learned from my teachers. But somehow this cross between the two really meant something to me. And And did your brother have ASD or? No, 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 he is the opposite. He's, he's, the biggest social butterfly you'll find and he's really smart so really I I told him that a lot of my research was born from our relationship and play is supposed to be a huge huge kind of place for social and cognitive engagement for language to emerge and things like that so it, it seems like this relationship is really ripe for more to be happening there's sometimes the siblings are very much lead separate lives and it's just a shame because what if you know what if right. they could really take to it and had the right support really i think that the benefits would be huge mm. I want to lead into uh, emotional vocal exploration, or E for short. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So colleagues of mine, um, Amanda Friedman and Allison Berkeley, they're founders of the Emerge NC Education Center in, mm-hmm. in New York. And I'm really interested in different forms of therapeutic interventions for people with autism. Again, I'm only talking about uh, educational kind of things because that's really the antidote right now. That's all we have. We don't have a drug that cures autism. We know there's a lot going on in terms of genes and various neural pathways, but we have so far to go that right now the best bet is, and this is where we really, I think, should focus our energy right now is in terms of the best mode of education for these kids. Mm -hmm. What's helping under what conditions are these kids learning to speak? Under which conditions are, are they learning to play and mm-hmm. communicate? Is one mode of therapy better than another in certain situations? Is one better hands down? Really, we haven't found the answer. Various people think they have found the answer. What's so innovative about it and what I really took to upon hearing about it was that essentially what we're doing is scaffolding conversations with them. And what do you mean by scaffolding? So right now, as I'm talking to you, you're already thinking about what you're going to be saying next to me and you understand about the flow of you flatter yeah (laughs) i would assume so so basically we know about the routes that conversations take almost like a like a flow chart right Right. and uh if he answers this way then maybe i'll go in this direction or however it is but people with autism don't have a knack for the general just nuances and flow of conversation so we're teaching them how to tie their shoes we're teaching them the nitty-gritty of language right but we're not teaching them the nuances that really mean so much right like the posturing the tone of voice. Yeah, like, uh, exactly. And how do you delve deeper into conversation that you want to go into? And how do you kind of change the subject? Mm -hmm. In what ways is it appropriate to do it or to not, right? A lot of times, people on all parts of the spectrum, they just don't understand what point do I stop talking and then you start again. And this is something that interests me. Like, I wouldn't now start, obviously, not on this show, maybe if you're doing about bugs, I would talk to you for like an hour about bugs. But basically, kind of getting an understanding for the back and forths of 
conversation. So what we do is we kind of structure it for them and we give them various options and we basically show them, hey, you're, you're having a conversation with me. These are the topics that we've just covered. And the, honestly, these kids have rarely been asked about what's their favorite leisure activity and like mm-hmm. let's really kind of hash it out but with the structure of a lot of the very um, effective interventions out there. So why did you want to focus on the sibling relationship with children with ASD? Well I chose to focus on the sibling relationship because I felt it was the most um, overlooked and compelling relationship but what I've done in terms of my understanding of the interaction and how successful or willing or all these things exactly what's going on in terms of how much teaching is being done how much engagement is being done, which is essentially what I've done clinically for all those years. I looked at it kind of through the lens of the sibling relationship. Mm-hmm. But what I really was looking at was the essence of what is it to engage a person with autism and how do we do this successfully? And how do we do this without saying I belong to this camp or to that camp or this intervention's right and this one's wrong? And generally, through my own research and through my own experience with all these different interventions and through my own experience as a teacher and as a student, mm-hmm. Think of the best teacher you ever had. He or she was likely to have been really cognitively engaging, but also socially engaging. And I think that if that's the ticket for neurotypical people, it's undoubtedly the ticket for people who have social and communication issues. So I think if we can angle our interventions by having a real equal focus on the cognitive and the social facilitation that's going on, and we really start to understand what is successful and when is it successful, what does successful look like, um, and we start categorizing these things, I think we can really move ahead in terms of our understanding of educating this population, getting them to speak, getting them to want to be involved, getting them to be the best that they can be. Thank you so much for coming in. Yeah, thanks for having me. All right. You have a good day. You too. This is Fordham Conversations on 90.7 WFUV. Last up, I talked with Fordham PhD student Shaming Liu about her research on attention shifting in kids with autism. Your research looks at people with autism spectrum disorders, in particular, their impairments in attention shifting. What is attention shifting? Uh, Attention shifting, like uh, the traditional uh, classic term, where uh, when you were talking with me, you're focusing on my attention, but now your phone is ringing. You have to, you know, switch your attention to check your phone or check your email. So in other words, we are shifting our attention almost every day, almost every minute. So it's it's any moment where if I'm speaking with you right now and I hear mm-hmm. a phone ringing or I get an email from a friend, it's the amount of time that it takes for me to... So in other words, attention shifting means like uh, you shift your focus of attention from one object or this object can be one item or anything or a person to the other object. Okay. In other words, even the conversation topics we are talking about, but sometimes we still shift our conversation. In your study, you claim that impairments in attention shifting likely contribute to profound social disabilities and that mm-hmm. characterized ASD. What, what are some of these characteristics? The classic children with autism, they somehow show like impairment in social interaction. It can be any taskers like press the button of elevator or maybe just share a conversation with someone. So parents usually notice first, if you call their name, a girl, is uh, trying to respond time, but it doesn't mean they do not have this ability. They just need um, extra time. What would be the difference in time for me to switch my attention from one thing to another? 
as compared to someone who does have autism. It takes like average like 30 seconds to 20 seconds for my task. But I need to emphasize autism has a huge individual difference here. Okay. So it's very hard to give like the average time. It's not fair because some cases they show like a very fast response. Mm-hmm. But some cases they just, you know. With using our earlier example with the phone ringing, if I'm talking with you and I have autism, the amount of time it would take for me to attention shift from talking with you to acknowledge that the phone is ringing could take me up to maybe a minute in order to understand that's yes. going on. But during that minute, maybe the person will also delay the response in other stop the conversation because this is kind of like a strategy. Okay. Yeah. So if they are like working or playing on a game or something, and then their mom calls their name, it maybe takes them like a very few minutes to respond. And after they finally respond, maybe their parents already go away. People, we cannot just shift our attention without working memory. Even like uh, we just talk with like a stranger, a new person, just ask her your direction. You also need to use your knowledge. In other words, the something stored in your long-term memory or your short-term memory, and if you are using them, they are in the working memory level. So this is a, a context, okay. in other words, attention shifting in working memory. Working memory is, is a very interesting topic. Just to clarify what exactly it is, it's, if I'm speaking with you about this particular research, mm-hmm. my working memory, and I'm coming up with a question on the fly, I have to use my working memory to use mm. the knowledge that I already have about yeah. your research yeah. to come up with a question on the spot about the autism attention shifting research that you did. Right, yeah. Okay. Working memory, why has the title as working? In other words, we were working on the memory right, right now. We have two main types of the memory, short-term memory mm-hmm. and the long-term memory. Long-term memory will sometimes will start in your memory system for a particularly longer time. But short-term memory will just, you know, because we get those information just a few seconds or one minute ago, there is no reinforcement. But any memory, uh, whenever the short-term memory and long-term memory, if we are using them, it has to go to the information processing system. And the key, the heart of the information processing has this working memory. So your use of long-term and short-term memory in conversation is the process of working memory. Yeah. In other words, we are processing the memory. And then after each time, we just refresh because now you are using your knowledge about my starting. And then you are working on processing the memory. And each time you actually update the memory, it will go stop back to your long-term memory. Now your long-term memory is replaced Working memory, from what I can tell, has a strong connection with attention shifting because with attention shifting, you have to focus your attention on different aspects and kind of process that information. Mm -hmm. But because people with autism have a slower process in terms of processing information, their working memory as a result is also delayed as well. Mm -hmm. Is that correct? Yes. So with your study, how are you studying and examining attention shifting? I build animations show them the videos, uh, social problems. For example, like uh, a girl is uh, trying to uh, maybe just talking with uh, the other child, and the other child might push the girl down. And what's uh, actually the reaction? And if they really do it, what's the correct response for them? So the correct solution usually for us, like a more positive solution is help the girl standing up. Or don't push the girl in the first place. Yeah, I mean... Uh, but the uh, more common response I saw so far 
the kids with autism will cry together. Why is it that the kids with autism would cry with the girl that's lying down? Is it、Because、is it a form of empathy? Like what? Why?、Uh, why is why is that the response? Yeah, it's hard to interpret as empathy because I do not directly marry it. But my personal interpretation is the noise. The noise. Yeah, because if the other child is crying, those noise somehow will also invoke their reaction. Made them nervous, and those nervous emotion will drive them to cry. So there is one week interlude. Each week will have very different social problems. Okay. But、uh, I will get them to be familiar with this touch screen new technique. In other words, I notice like iPads has a wide application at school、okay. for kids with autism. They are using it as educational purpose. So the schools already have these iPads, and yeah, you're using these、kid. iPads to to have this study. So in other words, I want to use something they are familiar with. Okay. They are more familiar with touch screen, so I will show those problems on the touch screen. So, like it's kind of like the setting is kind of like a game playing. So in other words, they challenge those game. They are required to remember the correct solutions, and each time, whether whether you should have pushed the girl, whether they should yeah, help the girl yeah. up. Yeah, yeah. So in other、okay. words, even they don't understand why they shouldn't, you know, crying together. They shouldn't go away. But during this、uh, game playing, they are emphasized. Okay, which one is the correct solution? They choose correct solution. It will have like a.、Mm, Yeah, you know, it'll, it'll give you a chime yeah, or something saying、like, congratulations. Congratulations. Yeah, congratulations. <laughs> But if they they push something wrong, like they got a bang, <laughs> yeah, bang <laughs> negative like sound, they、right. they trying to avoid. So those kind of like rewards and reinforcement to refresh their memory. So like they are kind of like playing those game. But、right. sooner or later, on the second stage of the of the game is. They have to switch their attention from different problems. Okay. In other words, different social problems they already memorized, and their task, their game is kind of like trying to find out the correct solution, push the correct solution as quickly as possible. So they are challenged, trying to get the highest score.、Mm-hmm. What happens? So in other words, they are kind of like playing this game. I was hoping after one week interlude, their attention shifting will be increased. I'd like to thank Amanda Leader and Xiaoming Lu for joining me today. Head on over to the Fordham Conversations page on wfuv.org to learn more about autism. Stay tuned. George Bodarki and Cityscape are up next. For Fordham Conversations, I'm Alan Kamlik.